I have this sort of dream that what if all the technologies that help bring forward this future of work were built by a giant decentralized venture studio that had some sort of commons, open source software protocol, public good and shared services that exist there that they recognize they all want to pour value into and receive value from like, you know, some incentives associated with the shared whole and also some localized incentives. And can we find that schema and build upon it ourselves? This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. In our research at Boundaryless on the concept of the Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Enabling Organization, otherwise known as EEEO or 3EO, we've been often wondering if a common approach to organizational development is emerging from the success stories of several pioneers, such as Hire Group, Amazon, Birdsorg, and others. In the conversation we published today, Simone is joined by several guests who have experience to share in this field. The first one is Brian Peters, co-founder at Sobol.io, an app that helps teams visualize and manage dynamic organizational accountability structures and is focused to explore what opportunities live at the intersection of human collaboration networks and decentralized technologies like the Ethereum blockchain. We're also joined by Rob Solomon, founder of Cone, which is an application that enables companies to organize themselves as platforms, where teams operate and interact with one another in a marketplace as if each were its own autonomous startup. Rob also worked with Consensus, Zappos, and the Downtime Project on various experiments with holacracy and marketplace dynamics. Finally, we're also joined by Sasha Kellert, the founder of Recursive, a venture-backed startup building the ownership economy aimed at making it easy for platforms and creators to make any person a co-owner in their business, simply through the web without lawyers and notaries. In this episode, we discuss the 3EO ecosystem concept and the impact of the ownership economy. Tune in to learn more about how crypto can help design powerful new incentive structures and visual tools, striving to work based on a shared grammar. Here we go with Brian, Rob and Sasha. Hello everyone, we are back at the Boundless Conversations podcast. Today uh, it's a special episode, I have uh, several guests and with me there are more specifically Brian Peters. Hello Brian. Hello, this is Brian, nice to be here. And Rob Solomon. Hi. And uh, Sasha Kellert. Hi, this is Sasha, nice to be here. Thank you guys. It's been an interesting couple of months that we have been having this discussion around essentially what we call the entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organization. And we are having this conversation, uh, you know, mostly around the idea of building and using common software and protocols around empowering these new ways of organizing. So what is an entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organization? For the listeners to have a podcast and in general, the people that follow the work that we do at Boundless, uh, you will recall that essentially this is the, an idea of how a new form of organization is emerging uh, as an effect of uh, a broader complexity in society markets, uh, lower te- uh, transaction costs, 
And essentially, this is making organizations uh, uh, steer uh, towards being uh, more than uh, hierarchical, siloed, and vertically integrated. Uh, I would say inclined to be more like a, a swarming uh, uh, ecosystem of uh, small micro-entrepreneurial units that are, uh, are served uh, and essentially use a common set, uh, a common pool of shared services, uh, normally, for example, in the context of IT or finance or HR or legal, and that dynamically create essentially agreements between them uh, to bring the organization forward. And uh, uh, as we know, to some extent, uh, this pattern has been implemented by different organizations. And uh, the most famous probably at the moment is uh, Hire, this Chinese company that the boundaries uh, is working with since a while, that is pretty famous uh, for this very radical way of organizing this way with uh, micro-entrepreneurial units also building their own profit and loss. But similar experiences and experiments have been run by you know, organizations such as uh, Zappos or Amazon itself that is organized in a similar way, uh, even if uh, profit and loss is not such uh, uh, profoundly distributed. Uh, and also others like you know, Burzorg, ING, to some extent, they have been testing with these uh, uh, approaches uh, and many others. So uh, I will start this conversation with a quick round with our guests today. And essentially, I would like to ask you guys to just share what is your experience in this, uh, in this context and, and why you feel like this is an emerging pattern that uh, um, uh, may uh, essentially require its own software ecosystem, let's say, to empower this transition even more. I'm going to start uh, uh, calling you in, guys, so that we, we manage the conversation a bit more easily. So let's start maybe with Brian. Yeah. So uh, from from my angle and and working with Sobol, um, which is a, a consensus mesh XYZ venture, we saw the problem as as these more complex and dynamic organizational patterns emerge, we have challenges in visualizing them and keeping pace you know, with them. We're used to having constructs like the org chart, reporting lines, divisional structures. The hierarchy was easy to understand, and it gives us a sense of trust and security, even if it is an incorrect picture of what's, what's actually happening in the organization. And as we get more dynamic and we embrace this complexity, we need some form of visual tool to understand all the commitments and dynamic agreements that are forming around the accountabilities. And so what direction are we going? And how have we structured ourselves to do that? If we want to keep evolving both of those things faster and faster to bring in the agility and dynamics and the decentralized decision-making paradigms that we crave in order to keep pace with this dynamic and complex world that we are trying to embrace, we need a solid visualization. And Sobel has been focusing on how might we map this and make it easy for people to query, visualize, and make changes to the structure and the direction of the organization and these agreements and these commitments um, in ways that empower the individuals to have the autonomy to find their own path towards moving uh, the organizational objectives forward. And so you can think of it almost as like GitHub for your organizational DNA. Um, maybe, Rob, you can jump in because uh, you can explain to the listeners a little bit also what uh, Consensus Mesh XYZ Venture is, and also since Brian also mentioned this, and, and your other experiences in this space. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I joined Consensus in 2017. Uh, we grew, uh, I think about, we 
did about five X our headcount in the first year that I was there. And, and kind of at, at one point we were a collection of 50 different startups, you know, Sobel being one of them, but we had startups building and I should say consensus is a blockchain company that builds applications and infrastructure on the primarily the ethereum network but really on on any type of uh, protocol that can support applications and so we were about 50 or so startups some of them were poker applications supply chain applications developer tools things like that we also had consulting offices on um, pretty pretty much every every continent um, many countries um, different offices all around the world. And then we uh, offered blockchain training and education, marketing, we had an accelerator, we had an investment firm, so on. Um, and then we also had shared services like marketing, design, finance, IT, legal HR that would support all these different business units. And so uh, at that time, Consensus was a very flat organization. Um, all these units were very autonomous and we were uh, trying to bring order to this by having explicit agreements between teams, you know, service agreements, funding agreements. You know, if you're gonna, if we're gonna give you uh, this budget, here are the expectations with how you spend that and what you'll perform to do. You know, with this budget, here are your accountabilities and authorities inside the company, your domains, and as you know, you could imagine, Sobel was uh, a key piece of how we uh, visualized that and kept everything under uh comprehensible inside the organization last year in 2020 we restructured the organization and spun out some of the core infrastructure and software tools into uh consensus.net and we kept some of the uh, some of the teams that in uh and 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 largely the structure that i just mentioned at the parent company mesh.xyz we went through a little split there we're no longer quite that size of 50 startups and we no longer are doing the same type of global consulting, but a lot of the themes persist and with a renewed interest on incubation and future of work. Thank you so much. So, Sasha, let me just uh, introduce you a little bit because I think also your experience is going to be crucial on this because we spoke first maybe more than one year ago. And uh, when we spoke uh, for the first time, um, maybe your work was more into essentially creating uh, uh, value structures inside organizations of this kind. You know? So how do you, uh, for example, one of the questions we debated was, you know, how do you go beyond profit and loss, maybe not to steer the direction of a certain uh, swarming company uh, more related to the purpose, for example, or, and so on. So by over-projecting, let's say, uh, a value agreements on top of a pure profit-based, you know, uh, sustainability. And then after a few months, we catch up again, caught up again, and, you know, you kind of iterated a bit towards what you call the ownership economy. So maybe you can also guide us through this process and why you also pivoted this way and why it, it makes sense for your product also to talk to these kind of post-industrial uh, swarm-based organizations? Sure, uh, I'd love to. Um, thank you for taking me back to a year ago where um, <laughs> it was the very early days of Recursive. And um, yes, as you rightly said, it was more about rethinking how we define value and how we measure value in organizations um, with the goal um, of you know, finding a true value score for anyone who works anywhere. And then 
using that true value score to give power back to the people so they can negotiate a better compensation for themselves or better ownership position. And yes, as you said, that's over the year, you know, evolved into a different model for the company recursive that I'm running now. And um, it is more about ownership now. So we are trying to build the ownership economy. And what we mean by that is basically we see the next logical step in the evolution of platform capitalism to be um, a step where more and more companies are co-owned by stakeholders generally. So not just employees, but also suppliers, partners, customers. And um, we think that's a na natural sort of um, step that's that's happening and much like the you know what we're talking about here today is alternative organizational forms right where we have microsystemic um, or ecosystemic organizations and um you know that's a change and a shift that's happening on the uh, on the level of organizational forms and there's also you know a lot going on in in the sense of alternative ownership models right and so how we think about this at recursive is we see there's a spectrum from you know classic um, organizational ownership forms, which are more, you know, industrial age, mechanical sort of worldview um, on one end of the spectrum. So that's companies shaping nature, you know, the classic way to think about companies. I mean, Brian touched on that earlier with, you know, like classic hierarchy. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have a different ownership model where it's more about um, purpose-driven companies, you know, so nature shaping companies, whether that's in terms of your organizational form or design, you know, where you realize you're part of an environment, you're part of a context, and you interact with that, and, you know, a mechanical sort of object. Um, that's sort of the other side of the spectrum, you know, steward ownership, co-ops, B-corps. And, yeah, that's the spectrum we see. And we, we've been working on a, on a different model where you can easily, as any platform or creator, where you can easily make anyone a co-owner in your company. That's sort of the shift that we see happening. I want to bring about. Thank you. So I'm going to drop uh, first reflection here, and uh, really encourage you guys to signal if you want to jump in. Uh, one of the key questions that is emerging here is: uh, Does it make sense to really think about a common model of organizing as an, as it's emerging? So it's kind of counterintuitive because uh, with you know every time you you bring a model in people will tell you you know it's not you know you shouldn't bring a model in you know we need to be every context is different every model is wrong you know as as we used to say but on the other hand uh, it seems like markets and societies are, are evolving in this direction so so are evolving essentially in the direction to empower a lot the small elements you know the small teams so the small teams used to be just uh, one piece of the of the puzzle uh, in the in the industrial organization and now increasingly small teams can do basically anything you know they're really super you know the the, the unbundling of the for this organization has been ongoing for a while now and as a small team now you can leverage on cloud infrastructures you can leverage on you know unbundled marketing services you can advertise your products with facebook and google you know you can do whatever you want you can manage your employees and so on so I feel like there is this decisive push towards the small team, empowering the small teams. And so the question that I would like to ask you to, to engage with, you know, besides just the basic question, is a common model emerging? It's also another point of view that I would, you, I would like you to, to uh, deal with, that is uh, this idea of having uh, directive organizations versus uh, creative entropy-based organization. What do I mean with that? I mean that uh, essentially it looks like as organization transition into this idea of being just a swarm of small units mm, that consume common 
services like uh, you know most of you also Rob mentioned the legal and marketing and so on uh, and HR and so on there is also an inherent question that we want to deal with that is okay but then how do you give shape to the organization how do you direct the organization in a certain direction and uh, uh, one reflection that I was doing uh, while I was preparing this podcast and studying for example how Amazon works, uh, and Amazon, um, as you know, doesn't have this ultra-distributed PNL, but uses different things such as uh, what they call input metrics or forcing functions, and also basically giving teams the possibility to optimize themselves to produce a certain outcome. Okay, which is not the profit and loss, maybe, but it's something that is measurable and clear that the teams has under control. And of course, the activity of defining these objectives for teams and bringing those objectives down inside the organization is how do you steer the organization in a certain direction. So I'm curious to know what's your feeling about this. How do you see what kind of experience you also have in seeing if this common model emerges and how it's been pushed in a certain certain direction from the leadership, for example, of the organizations you, you, you've been working with. Yeah, I mean, my first reaction is yes, a common model is emerging, and I love the tension or or, or common objection that you're bringing forward, which is, you know, basically, wait, wait, um, you know, how can we embrace complexity um, and these spectrums that we're talking about in our introductions um, that will exist between, you know, what we sometimes today call traditional paradigms and some of these emerging experimental, you know, paradigms. Uh, how do we embrace that spectrum um, and have a common model? Doesn't it need to be a super wide open sandbox. Uh, and, and I think having, you know, worked on Sobel, one of the things we've learned is that, uh, you know, complexity and emergence can come um, over top of sometimes um, a, a shared language um, or a shared ontology. Um, and so when we're thinking about it in our paradigm, it's, it's visualizing and graphing, you know, the nodes um, and their relationships, the nodes being things like people, teams that they participate on, roles that they play, agreements that they're forming, you know, um, goals, objectives, drivers, you know, measures, you know, and what are the connections between all of these things? And, and we're recognizing that many different organizational paradigms, everything from the ones that, you know, we consider traditional and hierarchical through to some of these more interesting self-organizing and highly dynamic and 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 micro enterprising uh, styles still have sort of some common building blocks and so it gives me faith um, you know and nature has patterns as well that give me faith that there can be a shared model a shared data you know grammar or model and uh, a shared language that can still create tons of experimentation and truly embrace the complexity and emergence that's there yeah, so the I think generally, yes, models um, are obviously always um, tricky uh, in terms of their general apl- applicability. They, you know, the, the more general they are, the, the more they lose uh, value. Um, but I think that's not true when you um, when you speak about biomimicry. So if we if we use nature as a sort of um, as the you know OG designer um, and you know looking at it from from that perspective, then I think there are definitely um, lessons we can learn uh, in terms of how should we organize to be a viable organization? How should we organize interactions? How do we also um, find a solution for that dichotomy you mentioned earlier, you know, between central control, but sort of autonomy on uh, um, across the larger network itself? You know, I think nature has answered quite a few of these questions. And what's influenced my thinking quite heavily, um, being a systems thinker, was uh, the viable system model by Stafford Bear 
which is a generic blueprint for a viable system that can survive and thrive in any organization. So I think, yes, um, you know, merging these things to, together, I think there is definitely an opportunity to have a sh new shared language around, you know, a better form of organizing and um, definitely some technical aspects that can be used as well, copying from nature. You know, I think the work's been changing for a long time without taking a step back and thinking about how it's been changing. It's easy to miss the ways in which, um, you know, elements of, of this model and this thinking have been kind of emerging. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you have teams of people working together to build something. And then those teams either expand their scope to build more or they partner with other teams to uh, expand the scope of what they offer. So let's say you're building an e-commerce platform, you can either build the the payments terminal that accepts the credit card of the person who's buying the thing, or you could use a plugin uh, from someone else uh, and have kind of an explicit service agreement between that other group that they're going to collect, you know, payment information and keep it all secure and, and remit payment to you. More recent technology has kind of enabled us to, and trends with agile using Kanban boards, uh, the way we've just kind of organized product teams in general has allowed us to kind of modularize the way in which all this work is being done. You have more teams uh, working with external partners through explicit service agreements and APIs. You have teams inside of organizations working together with uh, hopefully more explicit, but sometimes implicit service agreements. Uh, also, you know, through APIs and other types of more scalable agile frameworks to, to build on top of these things. So you, you're starting to see the organization go from one monolithic, tightly controlled hierarchical organization that you know, maybe starts to struggle to deal with complexity once you get past 100 or so employees to you know, massive organizations of autonomous teams working together with more scalable uh, frameworks uh, because they're they're accountable for specific things and they, and they kind of plug in together in more scalable ways. So I think what 3EO... Rendon High, what what uh, you know, market-based dynamics and other other frameworks like this are trying to do is, is take this a step further to make these service agreements between teams more explicit, to to ultimately uh, shore up some of these more recent patterns and allow teams to become even more accountable, even more autonomous, and make organizations even more scalable. Continuing on these trends. Yeah, so I just want to build on what Rob's saying there with the 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 analogy of the the agile paradigm of of work and how it's transformed work. And I think that there over over that agile movement, you know, that started with the manifesto and had sort of the Scrum and scaled agile uh, methodologies. And it, it when we look at it in its in its nascent phase, it was sort of sticky notes on a whiteboard, and it didn't really understand what its its you know model was or or what the protocol was. Um, some of the things when they emerged, you know, were somewhat dogmatic, and and you know that's where some of the pushback of like, um, you know, you can't you can't create a protocol um, or a shared model because it starts to over constrain things. But you fast forward, what is it like twenty years now um, of agile being experimented with, and and the and the software enabling systems that have emerged, and there is a common data model. 
um, you know, that that is there in the sense of, you know, there's these uh, these tasks that move through these workflows um, and then these tasks have relationships to each other and your particular practice may be quite varied and there's an incredible uh, level of variation that has been able to embrace the complexity of delivering in an agile way in lots of different markets in lots of different organizational structures um, and doing these types of projects. And I, and I think they've started to zero in on, oh, yeah, no, there, there are some common building blocks and there are some common ways in which these workflows um, play out reg- uh, regardless of the you know permutations, combinations and variations that have emerged over time. And, and they found the software systems that succeeded over the long term um, and have developed marketplaces and ecosystems that support these practices are the ones that were able uh, to find that somewhat simple model on which all of this could be built. What I want to underline here is that uh, sometimes compromising over a shared uh, protocol, I would say, or a shared grammar is uh, a way to enable broader uh, communication, broader legibility, uh, and broader engagement and relationships and transactions happening in the ecosystem. So, uh, you know, one thing that our listeners need to understand is that every time you have an organizational practice or an ecosystem, if you compromise, let's say, on a certain level of uh, shared uh, uh, grammar or language, you do that because you want to have more interactions. You know, it's a way to reduce further the transaction costs. So now, for example, having all this uh, common language around Agile makes it easy for us to have certain job positions or skills or having certain, you know, conferences where we can exchange our practices and so on. Or maybe software that can also be compatible with each other. So you can have Atlassian buying Trello, for example, and, and you know, transitioning and integrating. So it's interesting in terms of uh, reconnecting uh, with the idea of uh, distributed profit and loss and, and markets. So, uh, so you're dealing with the ownership economy, you know, and uh, I'm really interested in that part that has been rarely part of the conversation around uh, progressive organizations, at least in terms of organizational design and development. You know? So the organizational design and development practitioners have been always talking about agile, for example, and, you know, scalable agile and so on, but, you know, hardly spoke about ownership and equity and so on. And uh, I, I feel it interesting because uh, to some extent, uh, equity or ownership in general is a way to ensure that what you bring, what you are creating has value for customers. And what I mean with that, uh, if nobody's telling you what you, you, uh, you want, you have to do, you are, and you are constrained to figuring out what you, you have to do to become sustainable. And, uh, uh, this normally deals with investing, you know, into something, for example, to create something, uh, tangible for the market in the long term, there you need the equity and the ownership model, no? because you have this phase of not having product market fit, let's say, that essentially can also can only be attained if you have a way to say, you know, all the energy that I'm putting here to get to the product market fit is going to end somewhere. In something that I own, essentially, no, and and this is also, uh, I think, uh, uh, a counterpart of uh, directiveness versus self-emergent um, creative entro- entropical behavior. So what I mean with that, if you have an organization where you can do what you want, then it's clear that you have to, to deal with your own PNL because you know otherwise, how do you figure out if what you do 
it's sustainable. It's, it's, it's somehow it's resonating with the market. On the other hand, if you have an organization that still gives autonomy to teams and has a lot of uses, for example, these alternative forcing functions, not the profit and loss, but more like KPIs and so on, then there needs to be someone that puts the investment in. It needs to pay essentially your teams. It needs to give your team members a, a, a stipend, a, a, a salary to execute and maximize their outputs for a certain input function, like in the case of Amazon. So this is what I mean when I say the ownership, distributing ownership in the micro enterprise, for example, is a very powerful way to ensure that the organization you are building is in resonance with the market. At least it removes this responsibility from the top, from the visionary, from, let's say, the, the, the leaders of the organization, and it allows essentially to have a more horizontal organization. So what you, what's your feeling on that? And then I would like uh, you guys, Rob and Brian, to jump in also from the perspective of your past experiences with that. Yeah, I mean, one, 100%, exactly. So if you really want to unlock creativity, whether it's um, from the people that you work with or, uh, you know, the, f- from those people involving the customers to develop products and to, to build an organization that can survive and thrive, then it's not enough to just change the way you organize or to change the visualization. You need all that, but you also need to uh, change the underlying ownership structure, right? And that's not happened. You know, there hasn't been a lot of innovation in in terms of legal entities, for instance, you know, we've used the concept of the company they incorporated for, you know, forever and nothing, nothing's really changed there. Um, you've got a few different versions of alternative ownership models, but, you know, they all have their own drawbacks. So I think, yeah, if you really want to build a, an ecosystemic organization, then the only way that's going to be successful is if it's, if it's possible to have a shared identity um, and shared decision criteria and rules, but also, you know, a lot of autonomy on the local level. And you can only achieve that if the underlying ownership structure allows for that, right? So that's current, not currently possible with an existing um, sort of uh, setup. And what, what we think will happen is that over time, you can have um, a large organization where, you know, every time you spin up a new node in that network, um, the ownership, it, distribution in that network is different and you can set it up in any way that um, sort of, and make sure you maximize creativity and customer focus. So, for instance, you set up a new node. Um, employees that work in that node get ownership. The, the you know the more they work um, in terms of you know delivering customer value or value to the larger network, the more equity they get. And you you know also have a tool there to say that node can now share ownership, not not just with the employees, but with customers and partners, you know, which then makes any product or any activities aligned with the affected and affected of that, you know, node. And I think that's sort of the, you know, the be- a necessary change in the underlying ownership structure. For me, I, I really resonate with this because, you know, yes, we're working on visual, you know, I'm, I'm very focused on the visualization, but I love what you're bringing here, Sasha, which is that at the end of the day, you know, we're driven by the incentives in in, in this. And we you're also calling attention to the fact that like more and more, they, they talk about this even when, you know, uh, when, when companies are kind of trying to understand their competitive advantage or how to approach go to market, they, more and more we're talking about, we're producing a network. Um, our network size and our network vibrancy, our network, you know, participants is what what makes us um, interesting, valuable um, to others. And and so this, this understanding that the network's important when we have incentive structures today that are not network focused. Our incentive structures have 
have done a lot of innovation surrounding investment and at-risk contributions from investors, at-risk contributions from founders or extremely early stage employees, and then it kind of stops there. You know, there's there's sort of after that, it's like, meh, we haven't really thought much about how the incentives flow to others who are adding value into the network. And so I think if if we don't find a way uh, to focus on these problems, uh, then you you will not be able to compete with the existing established centralized networks. And so we, we get excited about the possibilities of these decentralized networks where all value creators and all contributors to the network um, and the community are receiving rewards commensurate with their contributions. But if we don't solve the fundamental problem of the incentive model and find a way to share that in a way that doesn't trend towards um, imbalances, chaos, etc., um, you you know, then we will not be able to compete with a hyper-centralized, you know, network and be able to bootstrap a net new network because you're not incentivizing all the participants that are needed to actually lift it up. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's exactly um, and uh, one of the big problems I see with uh, with crypto as well. Uh, if you look at it from a um, perspective of sociology, you know, there is a lot of, and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, um, you know, a believer um, but there's there's also you know still a lot that needs to be solved there in terms of crypto saying that there's going to be an opportunity here to to solve some of these problems. But then they still you know there's still a lot of the struggles that are from the old world are still is still present in the in the in with crypto. You know like we still have um, centralization. We still have um, you know a, a, an elite group of people that. Um, you could say sort of have a lot more say in terms of where the network uh, development is heading. And um, what I'm trying to say is, you know, the underlying incentive structure needs to be changed. So how do you, you know, how do you distribute ownership? And crypto is probably the best way um, or the best tool um, to get there. But even there, there's still a lot of um, things that need to be solved, you know, in terms of how do we, um, how do we actually achieve that? There's still a power law distribution in terms of the governance around the protocols, and uh, I think some of these issues still need to be solved. Right. Two things. The first thing is, uh, um, as Sasha said, you know, these problems are, so, so, to some extent, are still there. No. So my, my question for you would be, uh, do do you see that as uh, also some kind of inherent problems? You know. So, for example, to run an organization, you you cannot uh, get rid of. Uh, for example, the, some kind of leadership, no? that some kind of centralization of decision making, for example. And on the other hand, what are the new possibilities that uh, using crypto as a as a powerful way, for example, to design a new structure, new new structures of incentives that can help us to actually go beyond it? Uh, and uh, uh, as a final reflection. What would be the impact of these new tools into recasting the idea of one organization that we have? Because it seems like the more we go in this direction, the less we are dealing with one organization and the more the ecosystem becomes the real player here uh, uh, in the room, essentially. Yeah, the points are good ones. Uh, the one thing, uh, one kind of quick initial reaction to governance in crypto right now is, is you know, of course, there are there are groups that are disproportionately contributing and disproportionately voting on things. But that, you know, just because people aren't uh, participating directly in governance doesn't mean that the fact that they have the ability to 
doesn't doesn't make a big difference. I mean, we see this with with political elections as well. Um, just because uh, you know people aren't voting doesn't mean that they that we should scrap democracy, for example, because uh, we know that if a politician comes along that is uh, kind of so against the the spirit of you know uh, what these people are for or is so in favor of what these people uh, you know that, that aren't voting for they will become active participate in that right now in, in ethereum world there's governance around rewards to miners and 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 gas fees and things like that and for the vast majority of crypto users they don't really care all that much they don't need to participate that much in the governance but if there was another more consequential decision that impacted different groups then you probably could expect uh more you know participation and vocalization from from other groups and the fact that these people all have the incentive um, even if they're not directly uh exercising their their rights and governance it still it still makes an impact on how the contributors approach various proposals and how the network will kind of eventually evolve and grow. So there's still some benefit, uh, even if people aren't fully participating in governance in crypto, and there is some degree of, of centralization in, in terms of who's contributing and, and how and, and where the where the uh, the projects are going. That said, there's still a long way to go. The blockchain itself is a major breakthrough on a kind of a core infrastructure level, but we still need better user interfaces and more efficient execution to make these things really usable. I mean, uh, you know, we had the internet in 1990, but no one was doing a uh, four person podcast screen share recording session, you know, in 1990, because the hardware didn't exist, the user interfaces didn't exist, this application didn't exist. So yes, you know, the infrastructure was there to allow this, but you still needed um, uh, the the kind of layers and tools on top of that. And so as it relates to participation and governance and incentivization and, and all that in a more scalable and effective way with blockchain, um, you know, I, I, I think there are definitely some things that, that platforms like Ethereum need to do to become more, more feasible, you know, namely the expense of interacting with the blockchain and the scalability of the blockchain. But that's, you know, that, that's, uh, there's kind of a clear path to how that's going to be worked out. From there, it's more about what are the actual tools that people kind of log into and use and how easy is it for them to participate and and view what's important to them, uh, participate, make their votes clear, and how can various projects they work on from a legal standpoint, from an ease of use standpoint, spin up and create you know, shares or tokens or whatever it is in those projects and distribute those to the right types of people. And, and um, there's all kinds of applications for the distribution, monitoring, you know, use of those things. You could imagine people starting to um, package these with other securities and trade them and, you know, all kinds of things and what happens in these cases. So there's so much yet to be figured out more on the, 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 the user side, you know, blockchain isn't isn't a, a panacea that's going to fix all problems, but it does provide a scalable framework to build on top of. And now, now we need to do, you know, go through the, the act of building. And that's a lot of the reason why consensus was founded in the first place was to build out that application layer to make these ideas more feasible. So still a ways to go for sure. And we'll never have a perfect, perfect solutions where where the will of every single person is immediately and perfectly reflected in, in the projects they contribute to. But we can definitely make things a lot more scalable and targeted and, and effective. 
I like uh, the sort of like challenge that Sasha was bringing forward here relative to the to to the blockchain ecosystem, and I see a spectrum of of things happening, um, and 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 a challenge that's very real. So the spectrum of things that is happening is like uh, some some blockchain companies. Are, are being founded on the existing sort of paradigms of investment, value sharing, um, uh, etc. Whilst actually, you know, very honestly trying to build the decentralized, you know, future. But you know, as Rob's pointing out, it's a very nascent, um, you know, uh, technology still. And so the behavioral things that we believe are possible and talk about here on this podcast, the primitives in the blockchain ecosystem aren't there, and the legal elements, um, you know, of the real world scenario, um, bringing the real and the technical together um, to be able to unlock the behavioral paradigms we're interested in. Um, it, there's there's a big gap there. And so I think there's a spectrum of participants who have to deal with the struggle of, well, how do I build this decentralized future whilst I fund myself and and legally organize myself using the old world paradigm and stay true to that? And I think the founders out there in the blockchain ecosystem and the communities out there um, that have been able to sort of uh, get this right in one way or another or really lean into the ethos and use, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations as best they can um, are on the the innovative edge of what is possible given current uh, legal paradigms and working with, you know, um, uh, legal and government organizations to try and like solve that gap as they're going. And it's like, the, I, I have a lot of empathy um, for those trying to build on top of that with a true vision for the future whilst, you know, trying to bring in these these primitives um, that are needed. So yes, the decentralized finance thing and transactional stuff is starting to see some maturity recently, but like decentralized identity and reputation and the protocols associated with that are, are still very much emerging, you know, and, and how they will be used, you know, the concepts of these dynamic equity and, and value share economies and how they might marry up to the primitives in the, in the blockchain ecosystem and the legal system. It's like, wow, like, you know, my heart goes out to those trying to solve those problems and stay true to their purpose of decentralization while whilst operating on today's model. Well, actually, you know, we had, we had originally been talking about the idea of participation in networks inside of larger firms um, and these firms kind of adopting a more decentralized model. And we spoke a lot about kind of equity in the context of emerging projects, new types of organizations, loosely coupled organizations and, and kind of in the blockchain world. But bringing this back to the idea of more traditional firms uh, starting to ease into these emerging models, um, when we think about equity, oftentimes we think about equity from the standpoint of what's fair you know, for our employees. We want them to participate in the upside. Um, we don't want to have massive income inequality in the country. We want to keep them from quitting because we'll give them an equity plan that requires that they stay here for four years. Um, so there's, there's equity kind of in that sense. Um, but there's also, you know, equity, uh, as kind of a means to align incentives across a large organization. And when you think about, um, incentive alignment at a startup, let's say you're at a startup that's 10 people and you own, uh, 10% of the company, you know, your incentive alignment is incredibly strong with that startup. You will spend money like it's your money. You will, um, you will put in the extra hours. Um, you feel like your contributions, because you're one of 10, you're making 10% you know, of the contribution of the company, and you also own such a large percentage of it, you will um, you will kind of go above and beyond really feeling like you are an owner. 
the risk you run into when you're one of 500,000 employees and you own a fraction of a fraction of a you know 0.001% of the company um, is that you're still you're still incentivized in nominal terms but you don't feel like your contribution can really move the needle on the value of your equity and so you're incentivized not to quit but you're not incentivized to spend money like it's your own money or or to put in the extra hours and and kind of things like that and you don't have uh you know much much say on things and, and and much participation in governance so one of the things that i think is interesting about our opportunity here as we divide the the firm into autonomous you know product teams whether that's through things that have been more widely adopted already like such as agile or or teams experimenting with more with more um interesting models such as hire uh, that are that are kind of giving more more autonomy to these these teams is the idea of incentivizing performance um, at the local level so at the team level and what they're building um, and at the global level so that you're kind of getting the optimal mix of hey what you do really matters to your team and you're going to be rewarded appropriately also um, you're a stakeholder in the broader network and your collaboration is also valuable with with other you know groups inside the network, um, and that's always the case. You know, even without even without direct incentives, people are promoted and and fired based on their local performance. People are expected to collaborate nicely with others in the organization. That also factors into their performance evaluations and their social capital inside the organization. But we have an opportunity to be much more deliberate and scalable with this. You know, as organizations get larger and larger, the ability for the hierarchical um, structure and managers to kind of see who's a good actor, who's a bad, who's adding value and who's not. And then to be able to compensate them for that and align these incentives gets harder and harder, the more organizations scale. And so these more formal scalable uh, conversations on equity can do a lot. Um, and, and, and the act of, of kind of um, decentralizing and, and modularizing organizations can do a lot to help scale these organizations into networks. And we see this with, you know, with, with economies, you would never run um, an economy where you can't own your company, you own a share of the entire country, um, then you wouldn't be incentivized to run your business the way that we would you know, run your business. Conversely, um, maybe there would be some benefit to having some stake in the country uh, that, you're, that you're a part of so that you don't have businesses you know, polluting or, or manipulating uh, groups of people or, or acting in some of the more unethical ways that we see happening kind of in the, in the modern world. So there's, there's some mix, there's some mix here. Um, and we can start to emulate that inside of organizations as well. Well, wow, so lots of stuff here emerging. Uh, I want to drop some further reflection for you guys to have another round, uh, possibly iterating towards the end of this conversation. You guys, I don't remember who exactly said, you said something very interesting that is that you refer to all the world paradigms, no? and the fact that, for example, some of these people running these uh, very new organizations, such as those that develop uh, blockchain solutions, for example, uh, I think it was Brian that you mentioned, no? yeah, they have been running these new organizations with all the world paradigms. And I think this really made me uh, reflect also on the uh, role that... Uh, but uh, this uh, shared grammar on building a post-industrial organization made of micro-entrepreneurial units, shared services, and uh, dynamic contracting, and uh, the technology that can empower those new ways of organizing that uh, for sure I think is going uh, to entail some kind of use of a blockchain solution as a 
I would say uh, zero trust, let's say a multi-party uh, infrastructure for communication. To some extent, also the softwares that you are building and that we want to build in a more powerful way as an ecosystem, let's say. So the software that empowers, for example, certain attribution of ownership or describing our work agreements uh, and having contracts between parties and exchanging PNL and, and money, you know, through units and so on. So it looks like uh, these uh, technologies are essential for many things that are really uh, uh, fundamental to unlock a post-bureaucratic ways of organizing. Uh, in a way that, for example, you know, uh, you know, equity distribution, for example, when Rob, you mentioned the idea that if you own equity, uh, then you have incentives to put 100% of yourself into something, you know, that is that is inherently, let's say, not something that happens in a bureaucratic uh, organization, not because of uh, the traditional relationship with capital and labor that happens in a, in a traditional industrial organization that are inherently, let's say, premised on... Uh, exploiting the worker, you know, the labor, the, the contributor, the employee, you know, let's say. That, that's, that's essentially the thesis of capitalism as we used to see that in the industrial economy, let's say. So I think this, this kind of idea that ca- the new incorporation of this, uh, uh, of capitalism, uh, that no, somebody identifies as a post-capitalism or post-bureaucratic, post-industrial, as it's powered by Web3, and other technologies like the ones that we are developing, as I said, is really essential to unlock these new ways of organizing. And in these new ways of organizing, I think one thing that is interesting uh, that is emerging is this idea that we may be able to uh, create initiatives and strategies that uh, um, attain, let's say, obtain what uh, uh, also Peter Thiel once described as uh, this idea of becoming the last mover. What do I mean with becoming the last mover? I mean, something that uh, it's so, let's say, powerful and maybe so inclusive and so so co-creative and so uh, able to really get all the stakeholders on board so that it makes the case uh, for collaboration more than for competition or, 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 or dropping out or, or forking out. You know? So the idea that, for example, this is the challenge that we have in front of us. So we, we are talking about building this software ecosystem. So can these new technologies and these new organizational models uh, really make uh, the case for us to say, we're building this and this is the most open, most inclusive, most uh, competitive, most powerful way to build it. It makes no sense for you to build something alternative we should be doing this together. So I know it's it's a kind of a challenging reflection, but uh, you know, for I, I mean, referring for example to so what we ex- exchanged and we said, you know, let's build this as a trio, as an entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organization. If we really make this by using all these tools that we have been uh, talking about, is it possible that we are really discovering a new way to build organizations, to bring organizations in the world in a way that is long-term, inclusive. It tends to generate the possibility to create more value on top of a shared grammar, a shared ecosystem. So that's the point, I think. I mean, this kind of sparks a, a little 
a dream that that I've that I've have inside of me that that was this idea that you know we talk about you know embracing these new ways of working and helping lift them up and you know the role technology will play and but you know in the sense how might we do this it's kind of that tension I was talking about earlier. Like if we want to build this change, don't we kind of have to model it ourselves as we're building it? And, and so I, I have this, I have this sort of dream that like, what if all the technologies um, that help bring forward this future of work um, were built by a giant decentralized venture studio that was using these sort of sh- had had some sort of commons uh, open source software protocol um, public good uh, and shared services that exist there that they that they recognize they all want to pour value into um, and receive value from almost akin to the, to the model that Rob was saying, like, you know, some incentives associated with the whole and the shared whole and some local and, and also some localized incentives. And can we find that, that schema and build upon it ourselves? Um, And in doing so, ensuring that we aren't accidentally being pulled towards replicating the old patterns while we were trying to create the new and producing this, a centralized platform that controls which plugins are allowed to play on it that govern this this supposedly micro entrepreneurial uh, micro enterprise world it's like that feels strange to me and so i have a dream that maybe maybe we can find something that catalyzes enough of these early players who are, are sharing a similar dream to come over top and allow that commons or shared peace uh, to emerge because they they start with that in mind um and 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 can can from day one maybe architect that first value sharing paradigm um, that honors the whole uh, the global as well as the local in terms of the incentive structure and so that's that's what I feel is possible and what I get excited about when I hear uh, reflect on what you were saying there. You know, with with any type of new technology or, or operating model, you know, inside of companies, whether it's something like agile or holacracy or, or a department model, conglomerate model, whatever that is, you know, there's the requirements, the kind of core basic requirements to call a system that, and then there's all the different ways that that companies kind of customize. And one of the things I think is good about some of these emerging models that we're talking about here, where you have a more market-based participatory collaborative network of teams working together is that I actually feel the the kind of core requirement to start to go down this path is is actually pretty light. And then the way in which uh, companies and, and groups and organizations can introduce some of these new elements, they can do them a, one at a time. They could do them in different ways. Uh, so I think what the core requirement would be is that you have an organization, whether it's a, a, a formal company where their teams are part of the organization or a, a collection of, of companies or a cooperative or what, whatever you kind of define as your group of humans working in collaboration with one another as a part of smaller, you know, distinct teams, whatever you call that, that's your organization. And I think the core requirement to start to go down this path is that these teams have uh, some high degree of autonomy um, and you have some type of uh, process in place for them to collaborate together. And that's, you know, the good news is, is that's, that exists at almost every, uh, company already. Uh, from there you have, um, opportunities to, to iterate on how those teams collaborate across, whether they're connecting to each other through APIs and service agreements and so on. You have how you incentivize those teams 
to to collaborate. And that could be through performance-based bonuses. It could be through, you know, generic equity in the entire company. It could be through something that's almost like phantom equity in the project that they're working on specifically with, with some rewards based on how they collaborate inside the network. People are already incentivized by their social capital and, and their, their want to develop long-term relationships with the people that, that can, that they can help and can help them. So, um, there's lots of the, the, I think it, you know, to get started, it's actually a lot less, uh, extreme than, than, than most people think. And I think, uh, I think that there's, uh, you know, as, blockchain technology as new operating models as products like Sobol and Cone and Cursive start to show show more promise and traction, we don't need to necessarily go into a company and say, you have to adopt this entire model wholesale and, and radically shift overnight. Uh, I think what we'll see is we'll see organizations continuing to adopt agile and go a little bit more extreme with the way in which, you know, uh, I think, I think Amazon is famous for basically saying adopt this API structure between teams or you're fired. There was like a famous um, email from Jeff Bezos basically saying that every team needs to be modularized and think of itself as a product that will become more prevalent over time. Uh, teams will have more clear upside in their own performance through new technologies and, and new models uh you know at, at cone what i'd like to see is is uh teams becoming more directly accountable for the value of services that they're consuming inside and outside the organization through transactions between teams so that you can have a, a more complete PL, which allows you then to have other types of incentives knowing the the performance of each team more uh more completely you know sobel will help to graph this so so point being i think you know in in some ways, it's it's tough because it means it's, it's going to take a little bit longer and be more of a uh, of a process. But on the other hand, it's it's encouraging and that uh, we're not going to need to require teams to shift overnight. But you know, you say we, as we move to these models, it's it's going to be a process. And I and I think um, you know it's it's been in progress for a long time, and it will continue to to progress forward. Right, Sasha. Maybe last uh, reflection that uh, I would like to ask you to to make. You know, because it seems like. Uh, as we speak, uh, ownership uh, is becoming more like um, a fundamental dimension we want to play with, essentially. And also, both because uh, we're going to have ownership as an essential element also in big organizations, not just in two startups. So, so as we see, for example, where, where, where Rob said, you know, you can have equity both in the in the state and in the company. You know? So th- this is the idea. You, know? you can have equity both in the large organization like Amazon does, for example. You know? Lots of people working in Amazon, they have little salaries and lots of uh, equity, you know, and lots of uh, shares, let's say, you know, not equity. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the idea that ownership can be something that you use where it doesn't count what you do, you cannot reduce transaction cost. So some in some spaces, transaction costs can be reduced very easily and you can have smart contracting and so on. So for example, you can have uh, much better ways to manage pre-PNL and executing contracts and so on. But there is something that is really about being the entrepreneur that you cannot transactionalize. It's something that you need ownership for, you need equity for, you need to be able to collate all these efforts that you that you make and your contributions that you're making into something that is not transactionalized. It needs to be something you own. You are, you are essentially part, uh, as Rob also said, you feel like you are part of, you know, you are, it's really yours. What do you think about that? Yeah, so ownership is a f- fundamental building block to um, a new, you know, finding new forms of organizing 
and um, to making sure the, those new forms of organizing are actually successful. And ownership, um, as we discussed earlier, is basically something that everybody needs to have access to, right? So um, you can call it universal basic asset ownership. And I think that's something that needs to be driven up quite quite significantly on a global scale, right? And universal basic asset ownership means if I work somewhere, I get the opportunity to own a stake in that, whether it's a small team or um, local um, uh, business unit or, you know, not just in that, but also in the larger organization that, you know, um, that this small team is a part of, right? So you have ownership that you get access to based on the work that you're doing um, right now, right here, but you also get ownership in the in the company at large, right? So that incentivizes you to do customer-centric work for the team that you're working in, but it also makes sure you um, align your actions with the you know with the organization at large, right? So I think that's something that's essential, um, and we need the infrastructure to be able to implement that, right? And right now we don't really have that. We have employee stock option plans, which you know are limited in terms of their scope and their accessibility. And that needs to change. We need to get to a stage where we can easily make anyone a co-owner and give anyone ownership in, even on a project level. You know, if I join as a freelancer, you know, and I work with a small team for a couple of months, I should be able to have ownership in that, right? And um, I should be able to retain that ownership over time. And um, I think that goes even further. You know, when you think about assets ownership and driving that up, you know, who, you know, what about? Um, turning your as a knowledge worker, turning, you know, something that you've designed like an SOP, you know, a standard operating procedure, or you found a better way of calling a customer, you know, why can't we tokenize that? Why can't we turn that into an asset, right? Um, and if it's used inside the team frequently, you know, you again um, have something there that you can make money with, so to speak, right? So if I found a way to do a, to, to do a task better, I can, I can turn that into an ownership asset, right? So I think ownership, is essential if we want to enable these and accelerate these new forms of organizing. And it needs to be ownership in the larger organization, ownership in your small team, and then you having the ability to create your own ownership assets. Yeah. So if, you know, if I have, um, I don't know, I, I'm an Instagram influencer and I have presets, you know, a certain way to design my photos, I can create an ownership asset out of that and make money with it by selling it to other people. Yeah. So I think those are the three forms of ownership. And then, yeah, I, I think that's essential to enabling a new way of organizing, right? Right, right, right. So that was a, a great conversation. We're already more than one hour into this, and I know uh, you guys have something else coming up. So unfortunately, we have to cut it here, but I'm sure we're going to get back on this. And uh, for our ecosystem, that our listeners, uh, really, we're looking forward to for you to reach out and say, you know, uh, and express your interest into working with us on this challenge oh, of building essentially an ecosystem that creates these software solutions and uh, uh, enables this transition based on this shared grammar of organizing that is emerging from complexity, uh, technological pervasivity, and these new uh, trends uh, in the economy and society. I want to thank all of you and uh, use this last uh, couple of minutes to just uh, ask you guys to um, uh, point out our listeners to where they can find your latest work or maybe give a try to your softwares and uh, and reach out uh, to you. Let's start with Brian. Yeah, sure. You can find us at sobol.io. That's S-O-B-O-L.io. And uh, there's a fair amount on the website. You can start a free trial and tinker with what we've built so far. Um, I'm available on LinkedIn to connect. And uh, I love having chats like the one we've had here today. And uh, so feel free to connect. Thank you, Rob. 
Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Rob M. Solomon. A bit of a mess there, but you can find some of my uh, writings that I did with Corporate Rebels and uh, with Consensus on there on the topic of market-based organizations and decentralized organizational frameworks. And then and then more importantly, uh, the technology that I've built to uh, enable market-based uh, organizations is viewable at cone.network. That's C-O-N-E dot network. Thank you, Sasha. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter um, using my surname. The handle is at Kellert. Uh, that's K-E-L-L-E-R-T. And um, Recursive is the company that uh, uh, I was talking about earlier and that you can find on the recursive.org. And that's with a K. Yes, super. So uh, thank you all. I mean, uh, you guys, uh, it's been great. Uh, our listeners know where they can find uh, our latest research. Uh, go to platform.com slash EEO to check out the entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organization model that uh, we sometimes referred as 3EO during this conversation. It's just the same thing. We're using 3EO to be a little bit more handy. And uh, again, thanks so much. Uh, stay tuned for the next steps from this uh, group of crazy people and uh, catch up soon thank you for listening to this episode of the boundless conversation podcast we truly hope you enjoyed the show if you did please share this episode on social media review our show on any major distribution platform and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Walter Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.